Hi, it's Julie. Before we start the show, I just want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps get our show out in front of new listeners. Thanks again for listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. We hope you enjoy this interview. You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich. And today I'm here with Kristen Meinzer, who is a podcast host, an author, a producer, and we are so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much. So before we get started, I'd love to talk about what you're up to. Tell us about all the projects that you have going on. Oh, gosh. I have so many projects going on right now. So the front and center big project is my book, which is called So You Want to Start a Podcast. Appropriate. And it is a book that, you know, a lot of people have approached me over the years and have said, you know, how do I start a podcast? Or they try to pitch a podcast to me. For a while, I was the director of nonfiction programming at Panoply, which was the sister company of Slate. And so um, I was receiving pitches all the time. I would speak at conferences and I'd be approached by dozens and dozens of people who had podcast ideas. And I found that people kept on making the same mistakes when they were coming up with their show ideas and asking the same questions. And when I spoke to classrooms, I came over, I came across the same things over and over again that were things that I thought everybody should know this. If they're going to start podcasting, they should know this. And I've been in this business for over 10 years now, which in the podcast universe is actually considered a really a long, long time. time. <laughs> I, I know for like a lot of other industries, like if you're a doctor or anything else, like 10 years is not a long time. But um, yeah, in podcasting, it's a long time. And so I thought in our universe, it's I, I have enough of an expertise yeah. that I, I feel that I should be able to share my uh, stories and my ideas and the skills that I've learned. And especially because I am one of the only people I know who's been a producer, a host, as well as the director of a program, green lighting shows. And so I have all these different kinds of experiences too. Plus I've been a professor. So I thought if I can take everything I've learned from all corners of the media, from all corners of podcasting and share it, um, why not do it? So that's what this book is. And um, I also like to think it's kind of a cheerleader. I like to think of the book as someone whispering into your ear, I believe in you and I know you can do this. And Nobody else is you and nobody else has your story, so share it. I believe in you. I love that. And do you do you kind of get the same question, or did you get the same questions over and over again to the point where you're like, this has to be a book because yes. people are asking. Like yes. It almost writes itself, right? Yes. People, yes. You just give them the book and say, okay, here's the yes. answer to all your questions. Yes. As a matter of fact, the format of it was originally 37 questions. Oh, I love- and then later on it changed into a slightly different format, but it was because these are the same questions I either get over and over again or they're the questions that I think people should be asking themselves and they're not asking themselves. Before they start a podcast. Exactly, yes. That's great. And you have your own podcast too. Yes. So um, I've been working on Buy the Book for over two years with Joanta Greenberg and it's a reality show format podcast. And in each episode of the show, Joanta and I live by the rules of a different self-help book. We follow those letters down to the letter And we record ourselves at work, at home, with our friends, with our husbands, so you can hear how these books are enhancing or destroying our lives. (laughs) And then we just share uh, how our weeks went, our two weeks, and then we give a verdict on the book based on everything that we've gone through. And our listeners hear every step of the way what happened to us while we 
had sex when they told us to have sex, ate what they told us to eat, um, uh, talked as they told us to talk, mm -hmm. dressed as they told us to dress. I mean, all of these books have such wacky suggestions, and not all of them are wacky, but some of them are, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. every day, uh, doing this one thing for many hours a day. Um, right. In some cases, one of our most popular books was actually one where we had to talk to ourselves all the time. <laughs> and that was called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And I loved that one. It was so fun. Every It was just hours of recordings of me and Jolenta talking to ourselves. Good morning, Kristen. I love you, Kristen. It's going to be a good day, Kristen. Don't you feel terrific? Aren't you lucky to be alive? Yes, I am, Kristen. And I just I have that. conversations with myself. It was so happy. But then there are other tragedies, too, things that happen, you know. Right. The show has documented us losing jobs. Oh. Uh, it's documented us going through medical issues. It's documented us trying to live by books while really bad things are happening in our lives. And sometimes the books are the source of the bad things, actually. Um, so it's... It's actually a comedy show in spirit, but it's also kind of a kind of a thinly disguised um, feminist mm -hmm. um, show also that's trying to send the message that everything about you is already okay. Right. And every book that's telling you that you're broken or that you're faulty or that you've done bad things to yourself, um, don't believe those. Most, most self-help books are written by men and they're mostly consumed by women. And right. Should women, should we always listen to all these guys telling us that something's wrong with us? No. But they, feel, but they feel, I'll give you the answer. No. But they built an industry on it. Yes. Know? Yes, they have. A huge industry. Yes. I love that so much. And I'm excited today to talk about all your projects and what you've learned from them, how it's you know affected your personal life and your professional life. Um, before we dive into all of that, we always talk about coffee on the show. Yes. So we, yes. <laughs> we didn't quite start with it. But um, you know, what is your coffee drink of choice? As I always say on the show, I have learned so much about people and what their cho drink choices mean about them and what or say about them and what different types of powerful women, you know, uh, how they make their coffee decisions. So I'd love to hear yours. I was raised to always just be a hot black coffee person. No frills. You just drink it straight. You enjoy it. You don't need any flowers or rainbows around the coffee. The coffee is strong and it cuts through anything and there's no BS. You just enjoy that coffee for what it is. I love it. Yeah. It speaks, the coffee speaks for itself. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's so great. And did you start drinking coffee young? Oh, pretty young. Yeah. I mean, kids listening at home, don't, don't pay attention to this part. Just block it off. But from the time I was a teenager, I was up all night drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Ah! I, I don't smoke anymore, but you know, my friends and I would park at a table at a restaurant and then, you know, just we'd get the bottomless pitcher of coffee at Perkins or one of those right. kinds of restaurants. I don't know if Perkins is a nationwide restaurant. It, I mean, I think so. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's still around. I don't know. I don't well, Perkins <laughs> or Embers or Village Inn. There's all these different things that are like the equivalent restaurant. And then we would just drink pot after pot of coffee and smoke and then talk about all of the important things we were feeling and going through at the time. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was just a huge part of my life from probably the time I was 14 to 25. I mean, the smoking aside, we've learned a lot since, you know, then. It's pretty innocent fun to drink coffee in a restaurant. Oh, or yes. going out doing Of all God knows the what. other things we could be doing. <laughs> of all the other things, yes. Yes, I was an early, a very early coffee drinker, like kind of shockingly early. So I love to learn when people just, you know, we, we, we turned out okay. Yes. I think. <laughs> You have done so much, and you know we've already talked about some of your great accomplishments. 
I'd love to hear where you started. What has your journey been from, you know, whatever you think is kind of the earliest part of your life that influenced your career or even things that happened, you know, in your personal life? And, and how did you follow that? So what were the jobs? What were the internships? What were the opportunities that you had that got you where you are today? Oh, gosh. Well, I have to confess something. I didn't even know what an internship was until I was in my mid to late 20s. And that's because I don't come from a well-to-do background. I think people who know about internships come from backgrounds where it's like, oh, yeah, I can work for six months to a year without getting paid. And my family background, that never would have been a possibility. I worked my way through college. Um, it was understood that I was going to pay for everything right down to my tampons from the time I was 12 wow. years old. And the idea of ever having the luxury to work a job and not get paid for it would be so outlandish from right. my background. So I didn't even know what an internship was until later. And what part of the later. country are you from? Where are you from? I'm from Minneapolis. Okay. Yes. And so um, I, very late in life, I learned about internships and I thought, this is insane. <laughs> What, you're working for no, what? No yeah. pay? What? And yet, almost everybody I knew I who was know. very successful in their careers in New York, I moved to New York after college, almost everybody I knew who was successful in their careers had worked an internship at one point or another. And then I thought, oh my God, how did they do it? And then I found out, oh, their parents paid their bills right. while they were doing it. And, I, and um, it, it struck me as horribly unfair. But there is one thing I learned from those internship people, which was, a lot of what they were brought up to do was just network and interning was just another version mm -hmm. of networking. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to say, to get back to your original question, in my early days, I, I started working full time when I was still in high school and I was not necessarily working jobs that were related to storytelling, which was my big passion. Um, I was working to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, then I moved to New York and I thought, well, you know, I've done some journalism, I've done customer service, I've worked for nonprofits in the arts, I've done all these things. I'll just come to New York and I'll show them my resume and I'll get any kind of job I want in this area. And it turned out, no, because I didn't know anybody. Right. And people kept saying, work internships, and I couldn't do that. And But eventually, after maybe five years in New York, I did know enough people where I could start doing that networking thing. And that networking thing helped me to go from working a bunch of entry-level jobs. I had to essentially, when I moved to New York, start all over again from scratch because right. none of my full-time experience in Minneapolis counted to anybody out here. And so I started all over again working as an admin and then working in nonprofits and working in the arts and trying to dabble in storytelling here and there. And then as I got to know more and more people, I eventually was able to get my foot in the door in TV. And so I worked in TV for a few years and then eventually... Um, those connections helped me get into radio. So I worked at WNYC then. And um, originally I was hired as a producer for a daily news show there. But then um, within a few months, I was hosting my own podcast for them. And I did that for six and a half years. And then I got recruited by Panoply and ended up there for three years. And then also hosting and directing and producing and so on. And then since Panoply has folded, I've moved over most of my hosting um, and other podcasting work over to Stitcher. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's been kind of a wavy journey, one where I didn't quite know how things worked when I got here in New York. But um, anyone listening out there, my advice, even if you can't work an internship, the most important thing about an internship is really the networking. So go out there and talk to people. It's great advice. I, it's so interesting. Like the conversation around internships, I feel like we're not having it as much anymore, but I would say maybe 10 years ago, especially in New York, there was this big conversation about, 
internships kind of being a luxury and that not everyone could do it. And I think it's really important to think about, especially for people listening who are in New York or a major city, like what is the what is the equivalent? So I love that, you know, yes. networking, talking to people, meeting people yes. probably can get you the yeah, same space. Absolutely. You can call people up or you can email them. And one thing I say is don't say, can I pick your brain? I think that question <laughs> drives people nuts. No, have, have like maybe three to five specific questions you want to ask the person. Make it clear what you want to talk with them about and say, hey, I'm interested in entering your field of work one day, and I'd love to know what your journey was to get there. Do you have any advice for somebody with my background? Something that's more specific and something that doesn't just sound like, when I hear pick your brain, it's like, what can I dig out of your brain? And my brain's like, you know, it's made out of tissue, and like, I, I don't want you tearing it apart. So Please don't pick it. Don't pick, don't pick at my brain. Let's just, you know, have a conversation about specific things. Yeah. Know what you're asking for ask those things and a bunch of conversations can help with that and I learned it from one of my grad school professors also that it wasn't at all off-putting to her for me to say after I got my final grade for the semester can I take you out for a cup of coffee I am so impressed by everything you do can I ask how you ended up in this place what did you do to get here and that cup of coffee turned into a job Amazing. Yeah. So it does work to have conversations. You don't necessarily have to do unpaid work for six months. Right. (laughs) And a specific ask. I mean, just going into it with a specific ask. And that helps a lot, I'm sure, for people to really want to then recommend you and feel like you're someone they potentially would advance to, you know, within their network, introduce to other people. And potentially that eventually turns into a job. Yes. Yes, absolutely. One thing that, you know, we often talk about, like, just in general, especially in media, that the jobs that will exist in five years, ten years, like don't even exist now, right? So you go to college, or when I went to school, like digital media wasn't a thing, and I spent my entire career in digital media. And I think your story is exactly that, right? Like podcasting, you weren't, you couldn't study it, mm-hmm. you couldn't. Do you have any advice for people? You know, kind of, I don't know if it's just keeping your mind open or something. Like people who are working in industries um, that you know. Looking forward and seeing what maybe potential jobs are, like how did you kind of dive into podcasts and just have faith that it's something that would work, if that question kind of... (laughs) Well, I remember back when I was in college being told, you are the first generation that's going to... um, I'm a young Gen Xer, and I was told that people your age are going to work at least seven careers in your life. We're not in your parents' generation, and we're not in your grandparents' generation. Your parents' generation, it might be two jobs, your grandparents, it might be one. Mm -hmm. You have to be prepared for seven, not distinct jobs, but careers. So you might be a journalist for a while. You might be a nonprofit administrator for a while. You may be, I mean, these these are jobs I actually have. Right. Um, And you have to be okay having seven careers. And that's not a bad reflection on you. That is a reflection on the times we live in. And I think we're now entering a new era where I tell young people, Unfortunately, we're shifting over to a gig economy. Right. And being in a gig economy means that, unfortunately, you have to hustle for health insurance, you have to hustle for work, you have to hustle for a lot of things that, unfortunately, I'm in the midst of doing right now because that's just what we've shifted over to. Right. Um, and it's okay. Hustle as much as you want to, but along with the hustling comes some sort of freedom mm-hmm. because you don't have to just go to the same place every day for 30 years. Right. You really can use it to your advantage. Every time you hustle, every time you have a job here, talk to everybody there. Hang out at the, this is very theme appropriate for your show, hang out at the coffee station. <laughs> and one tip that I was taught by my friend Joel, 
uh, when I was working at WNYC on the first day, he was giving me a tour and he said, I'm gonna show you how to make coffee in these specific machines. And my tip for you is every day, come in and make coffee. Not because you're a young female, not because you're the new person. Do it because this is the number one place you can meet people, have conversations, make small talk, and show that you're helpful and like to be a good team player. That's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was such good advice. Joel Meyer, thank you for that advice. Thank you, Joel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. And I think, you know, today we are actually, we're recording in a WeWork. Yes. And what's interesting to me as you're talking, it's like, even here there's a coffee station and people from all over the city and the world and different companies are passing through there. So there's even more opportunity yes. to get to network. Yes. And you never know who you'll end up talking to. Right? I mean, just the other day at Stitcher, I ended up having at the coffee station an outstanding conversation with Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh-huh. And I just thought, and it's just because I am the person hanging out at the coffee station trying to like make some coffee. I love that. What'd you talk about? Anything you can share with us? Yes. We were were talking about how astrology is stupid. Sorry, people, if you love astrology, enjoy it. Enjoy your astrology. But he was talking about how scientifically it's a bunch of hoo-ha. Okay. I love that. I feel like that's a risky topic to talk about in New York. People really... Some people really love it. Some people really love it. And again, if you love it, have at it. That's fine. That's fine. But yeah, just don't do what Ronald and Nancy Reagan did and make all of your political decisions of the free world based on what your astrologer says. I feel like that's Please not don't a do that. plan. Or maybe your professional decisions. Yes, either. don't do that. Just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk more about this book that's coming out. So exciting and obviously very appropriate. We're on a podcast and we don't, we sometimes but not often get to talk to other podcast hosts about just kind of, it's very meta, right? Like the world of podcasting. Um, what are some of the top lessons from your book? I do think that we have a lot of listeners. I know we have a lot of young listeners and, you know, just women of all ages who want to start their own podcast. I think often, um, you know, people feel there's such a barrier to entry. And when I talk to people about starting their own podcast, my advice usually is like, just do it. I mean, maybe you're going to have very different <laughs> advice, but it's. I think a lot of people get very stressed about like, it being too technological and how do you do it and how do you host it and how do you have time and oftentimes I really want people to kind of jump in I'm sure that you have a lot more advice about strategy behind it so for anyone listening who's feeling that like I want to start something but I just don't know where to start you know what are your top not to spoiler of the book (laughs) don't tell us all the tips but what are you know kind of some of your top tips for starting a podcast yeah so my top two tips and I say this to every single person who has ever approached me about podcasting. You have to start off by asking yourself two questions. And these are the questions. One, why do I want to start a podcast? And two, who is it for? If you have the answers to those two questions, you can do everything else you need to after that. You can find your audience. You know how to promote your show. You know what to talk about. You know how to talk about it and so on. But the why can be anything that is concrete. Like in the case of me and Joel Lento with Buy the Book, mm-hmm. we knew we wanted to make a funny feminist podcast that was breaking boundaries because we heard a lot of just two-way conversations. We heard a lot of people just frankly like Dave and his friend Jeff trying to be funny in the basement right. shows and <laughs> or three dudes sitting around a table talking about politics yeah. shows and we thought we can break format. We can do something different. Let's take our inspiration from something else from a video game from reality tv from a scientific study from anything else that is not just two dudes laughing at themselves Mm -hmm. and so we both love reality tv so we decided to take from that and then uh build a show that sounds like a comedy critique 
but is actually much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. We try to touch on topics that are much bigger than that. And we didn't want our show just to be for self-help lovers, and we're really thrilled that it's not. A lot of people write in and say they hate self-help books, but right. I listen to the show. <laughs> they just like they just like the story and following us along in each one. Right. Because one thing I always say is the show is not about self-help books. Right. That is just the vehicle to tell stories. So number one, know why you want to start a podcast, and that's what we knew we wanted to do. And know who it's for. Mm-hmm. And we already knew in advance who our listeners were. We wanted it to be for uh, women, for people of color, for feminists, for people who sit at the nerdy lunch table, not the cool lunch table. We want it to be for LGBTQ people. We wanted it to be for lonely stay-at-home moms, for elderly people who feel like they don't have enough friends. We wanted it to be for all of the people who ever have felt like outsiders. We don't want you to feel like you're the cool dude who knows everything and we mansplain shit to each other because we all know all the same dude. Right. You, you know, that we knew who we wanted to speak to. Right. And we love those people. We are those people. Jolenta and I are not the cool kids. And that's who we wanted to speak to. It's like, we know all of our flaws. Maybe we don't know all of them. We probably have a longer list than we realize. And we know a lot of other people out there feel flawed too. And, um, we want to reassure them you're not alone we're all in this together and it's going to be fine you're already fine right i love that and i think your audience could be small too right like i think think just asking that question to yourself if it's a super tiny niche like you know you're just there there's a very specific topic you want to talk about and it's not necessarily i think when people start a podcast they often look like the big podcast and yes. what, you know, that's the goal but there may just be a small audience of people you can communicate with and i've been a lot of podcasters especially women podcasters that I've networked with that like they're like my audience you know I get 100 downloads on each episode and that's, that's a huge success right that's exactly. totally fine mm-hmm. according to Libsyn statistics the average um, Libsyn is a technology uh, for people who want to uh, podcast so mm-hmm. Libsyn publishes podcasts and very user friendly I'm not, I don't work for them by the way I just want to <laughs> but, but, but a lot of indie podcasters use right, Libsyn yeah. and according to their stats their average podcaster receives 124 downloads per episode so that's fine yep. you don't have to be shooting for the stars and if you have less than that that's fine too right. you just have to know why you're doing it and who it's for right. and the answer is not everyone if you're making a podcast for everyone, you're making a podcast for no one. Right. That's know who you're, know who you're yeah. making it for. And it can be very, very, very specific, such as there's a podcast that I love that's no longer in distribution called Little House on the Podcast. And it's just for feminist <laughs> Little House on the Prairie enthusiasts who want comedy. And it's like, I don't know how many people listen to that show. Right. I loved it. But that's a very specific niche of people. And there are a million other ones that are very, very specific. Right, right. Like, do you only like sports movies? Not just movies or sports, but do you only like sports movies? There's a podcast for you out there. Right. But think about who your audience is. And, I mean, I'm sure this sounds very obvious, just to say it out loud, but, like, authenticity is going to be part of it, right? So not just thinking, like, what would people maybe want to listen to that I don't personally have an interest in? Like, it will be a much better podcast if you actually care about Little House on the Prairie and are creating absolutely, it. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, another piece of advice I give a lot is um, look at your podcast one of two ways, either as your graduate thesis when you're graduating from senior year in college, and what is that thing you can spend a whole year every day thinking about and researching, and you're still going to be interested in it. Alternatively, go at it from the angle of, I'm already obsessed with this, and I will just make a show out of it. Like, I think about the bitch sesh um, ladies, for example, 
I'm guessing that those two would still just be talking about the Real Housewives, no matter what, whether there was a mic there or not. Right, they would they're just out for a glass of wine or just yeah, wherever they Yeah, they would are. just already be obsessed about it anyway. So choose something you're already obsessed with or choose something you're curious about and know that you can sustain interest in for at least a year. So, yeah. And then be yourself, as you said, because I think that there's a big mistake that inadvertently we sometimes try to imitate who we think the professionals are. Right. Um, and there are a lot of... Uh, demos that I've listened to from people who are clearly adopting the specific speech nuances of Ira Glass or mm. of <laughs> or of somebody on another show that they happen to like right. a lot. And you don't have to imitate how the gals talk on My Favorite Murder. When they started out, they were talking like themselves. You imitating them doesn't sound professional. It sounds like you're imitating right. them. So <laughs> just be yourself. There's only one person who is you and your voice is perfect already. Just be yourself. There is no other you. You are the best at being you out there. So share it. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And I'm sure, I think now that, you know, I mean, you've seen it probably more than anyone that podcasting has been around for a while. People get very fixated on certain types of shows, certain types of hosts and looking to be like, that's exactly how I want to be. But I think, you know, like with TV where there's room for tons and tons and tons and tons of opportunity. I mean, in this space, there definitely still is like a lot to be discovered. Yeah. And I mean, just sharing a story for myself, I'll say when I first started out podcasting more than 10 years ago, people would write frequently and say, she doesn't sound like an NPR voice. Why do you have somebody like this hosting a public radio podcast? She laughs too much. She's too nasally. She sounds whiny. What is that accent? She sounds like she's from that movie Fargo. Why don't you hire professionals? <laughs> um, the number of letters we got that just said, I don't sound like I belong on a mic. Um, and yet, it doesn't matter because I, sometimes that would hurt my feelings, and, but it doesn't matter. I sound like me, and that's fine. And a lot of those people writing in, they were just used to white male East Coast voices. Right. And frankly, that's a very small percentage of the world. Most of the world is not a white male on the East Coast. Right. Most of the world is so many other things. And there's beauty in particular turns of phrases. And I mean, I just think about, for example, I, in one of the first episodes of By the Book, I used the word barnyard language to refer to swears. And then the um, people who wrote in who just said, that is so unique and adorable. And then we... <laughs> And then we turned it into, our producer at the time, turned it into our foul language warning at the top of each episode. Cameron, Cameron at the top of each episode said, the following content contains barnyard language. You know, and, and so some of those turns of phrases have become adored by people. And even Ira Glass was, you know, considered possibly not normal sounding when he started out, but then he became the norm. So no matter how you start off um, sounding just sound like yourself and who knows maybe somebody will be imitating you someday right. that's, that's what I was thinking <laughs> I love that to dive back into your podcast by the book so we mm -hmm. talked about it at the beginning and you're reading self-help books and living the life um, I have some specific questions of how it relates to different things that you've learned but just for fun what are some of your favorite and least favorite self-help books you have read and participated in their you know in the lessons that they're teaching well, I absolutely loved Why Good Things Happen to Good People, which was, um, the book isn't perfectly written. That, you know, there are a few moments where you're like, oh, you're kind of an out of touch old guy writing this. But the spirit of it is so, uh, it, it's, it's just so heartwarming. And living by this book made me so happy, which is essentially every day set out to do kind things as often as possible for people. 
and it just made me so happy. It's something that I already try to do regularly. Yeah, I love that. I'm like, but, shouldn't we all be doing that? <laughs> yeah. But it is such a mood lifter to do kind things for other people, whether it's something small like giving up your subway seat for somebody or if it's something larger like donating your time by being a volunteer for a cause you care about or even just, I mean, one thing I love to do is positively gossip behind people's backs and just talk about how great people are. Like, can we talk about your producer, Liz, for a second? She's just fantastic. She's I met her over two years ago, and today she approached me and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I just wanted to let you know I remember you. And I thought, this is such an outstanding person. She just made my day by being kind to me, and now I'm gossiping about her behind her back, even though she's still in the room. Because, but it, but, but, To but, her face. You're gossiping about her yes, to her face. But it's those little moments of kindness that, I mean, it, it just made me incredibly happy. And another book that I love, I am such a goody two-shoes. I like the nice books. I really loved living by a simple act of gratitude, which was really about thanking people every day and living with a spirit of gratitude all the time. Writing letters to people even who maybe have made you unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I was going through some medical issues at the time, so I wrote letters to my medical team. I had just been laid off my job at the same time, and I wrote a letter to my boss who, you know, dropped the ax on right. me. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I practiced uh, a sense of thanks in everything I did, including those bad times, and it just it made things much more toler tolerable during a really tough time. I love that. I So my follow-up question for these books was, what are things that you have learned, and the good ones, we'll talk about the not-so-good ones in a moment. <laughs> so many. Right? <laughs> that, you know, help your career. Like, I'm, there's a lot that helps you personally, but even just mentioning to your boss, you know, what are some tips you've taken away from books that you felt these can be specifically applied to the work environment, to like make my life better at work? Well, I think both of those things apply yeah. to the workplace. I think it's really important to thank the people around you mm -hmm. all the time for what they do. And I'm not sure if you noticed when you fetched me down in the reception area, before I went through the gates, I took two steps back and I said to the receptionist, thank you for everything. I think it's really important to mm -hmm. thank people for even the smallest things. And all she did was she pushed the button to make right. the gate open. <laughs> but I just think it's incredibly important that we're very thankful and showing um, decency in, and civility to each other in the office. Who wants to work with a jerk? I know. Nobody wants to work with a jerk. And nobody wants to work with a person who takes credit for everything. When people say thank you, they're saying, I didn't do this alone. And I think that's important. That is a good workplace skill to have. Right. Um, and then I also, I mean, we've lived by some nonsense books too, but I've even gotten things out of those books. Right. You know, some of the books have really, I believe it was the four-hour work week, which is essentially telling you to make yourself a product and promote the hell out of yourself all the time. Yeah, can you, can you give like a two-sentence more summary of the four-hour work week for... <laughs> yes, so the, the idea of the four-hour work week is that don't wait until retirement to retire. Spread your retirement throughout your life and okay. do it now. And one of the ways to do that is to work as little as possible or to find ways that um, you can do your work that are way more fun and part of that is selling products. There's a lot of stuff like shill protein drinks, which yeah. I would like start a protein drink company, <laughs> borrow a million dollars from your dad and start selling supplements. I mean, there are things like that that are just complete nonsense like, wait, in there. Wait, what? What? <laughs> what? And then eventually you'll become so successful you can do horseback archery in your spare time, which is what he did. And then, so there's so some relatable. That's so, so relatable. relatable. <laughs> so relatable. <laughs> 
but the um, one thing I got out of that is don't be afraid to hustle. Don't yeah. be afraid to be your own brand. And we've read many books that essentially are saying that. Just go out there. Don't be afraid to hustle. Don't be afraid to say, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm working on. I love what I'm doing. Yeah. And I don't have to hide that I love it. When you asked what I'm up to lately, I told you the thing I'm most excited about, which is, you know, my book. And it's like, why should I hide that? I don't need to be modest about it because I'm excited about it. And it's fun to talk about things we're excited about. Yeah, I love that. What's, what, how do you work less? Like if you have, what's the tip in this book? <laughs> if you have a full-time <laughs> job that you have to go to, how do you do it less? I'm genuinely curious. So he has all of these strategies about bunching tasks together. So it's like only answer email from this time to this time each day. Uh, don't get on the internet most time. Uh, some of his tips are, in my opinion, wacky. Don't read. Oh, like a book. Don't read books Don't for read fun. fiction. He's okay. like, don't read fiction. That just wastes time. You know, so just okay. the, I, so some of the tips are a little wacky. Right. And then some of them are also, you know, you need, must, you need less money than you think. One of his ideas is that if you live minimally, you don't actually need to work as much and make as much money, which is a little bit of um, a narrow viewpoint considering the vast number of wage workers in the world right. who already are living hand to mouth already. And I just, I think about my mom who worked retail her whole life. I mean, telling my mom to cut down on her work right. so that she can, you know, focus on selling protein drinks and becoming a horseback archery master. It's like, there's no, like, she was barely scraping by. Right. So it is insane to think that some of this advice is, it's, it's for a particular person. Right. And, and I'm sure across all these books and just thinking, you know, I mean, you read a ton Probably everything has, if you can take it with a grain of salt, the big picture, there's probably always a nugget of, you know, something. Like maybe oh, yes. you learn from that book, oh, cool, I should only check email at a certain time of day, you know? Yes, yes. And so even the nonsense books can be right. helpful. And we've read so many nonsense What's books. What's the most nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> so at least once a season, we live by what we call a woo-woo book. Okay. And um, so Jolenta loves woo. She So we've lived by a tarot card book. We lived by... <laughs> Past Lives, Future Healing. We lived by an astrology book. So we've lived by some crazy woo-woo books. Um, but I think that the wackiest book that's actually helped us, or at least helped me with my work practices, was called How to Write an E-Book in Less Than 7 to 14 Days That Will Make You Money Forever. And What a title. It's quite a title. <laughs> what a and, promise. And we never knew what less than 7 to 14 days meant anyway. It's like, it's not <laughs> Wait, between. It's like, is it six days or less? Like, we, we never even quite figured out what that was. Um, but we each wrote a book. And, cool. I and, love that. And I wrote a novella, an Amish romance novella. Oh, very, very popular. They're very, very popular. popular. It's about Sarah Yoder, who is on her rumspringa break, oh. who is in love with an aspiring NASCAR driver named Tanner Chase. She gets called back to the uh, Amish community after her father has a tragic barn raising accident. Oh, I mean, the only way. Yeah. That's the only way to go. Yeah. And then once there, there's a mysterious farmhand who... <laughs> maybe is pulling at her heartstrings and she has to decide where she wants to go with her feelings. So uh, I wrote all of that in less than six days. And did you make money forever? I still make dozens of dollars a year off that book. forever? Dozens and dozens of dollars. Yes. They didn't specify how much money. No, they didn't. You would make forever. It could be a dollar. It could be a dollar. It could be a dollar. But, um, I mean, that book really... Uh, it, it encouraged me to buckle down and it also just after when it was done I thought I can't believe it I wrote a book right if I can write a book in six days and mind you it's a thin volume it's you know it's, a book. it's less than 100 pages right but I still wrote it and then 
um, I was having flashbacks to it a little bit when I was writing So You Want to Start a Podcast. I actually wrote that book um, in less than two months. So I, I just thought, That's wow. That's not that much longer. <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, I wrote a legit book that I'm proud of in, in under two months. And I sometimes wonder would I have been able to do it at the pace that I was doing it if I hadn't already had practice doing that other right. Amish romance. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't call the Amish book not a legit book. I would also call that oh, a legit book. Oh, it's not very well written, but... <laughs> so you don't, you're not asking the listeners to... Oh, check it out. Check, check it, it out. You check it out. Them. Well, yeah, check that one out, too. What was it, that one called? It's called? That one's called Return to Intercourse, Love. an Amish romance. Love it. Return to Intercourse, an Amish romance. Intercourse is a town in Lancaster County, <laughs> Pennsylvania, which is Amish country, just to be clear. Yes. <laughs> just to be clear. Yes. Double meaning. And what... <laughs> so what tips... Did you learn about start? I mean, that's another huge question, right? How to start a podcast, how to write a book. What is the one tip you learned for people to go out and write a book? Okay, so to write a book, I think that what's worked for me is don't look at the whole, mm-hmm. look at the parts. And this is something that I do all the time anyway. I'm, um, I like to clump things together or bunch them together. I, I set time limits for myself all the time. For example, if I am on the fence about going to a dinner party or a social gathering or a networking thing, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to walk into a room and talk to 200 people I've never met before, um, I always set a 75-minute rule for myself. And I used that all the time back in the days. I used to online date, too. I just need to do 75 minutes because it's over an hour, which means I'm getting something out of it. For I'm, I'm not just going in and walking out 15 minutes later um and keeping up appearances I don't look like that jerk who just like ate all the food or drank all the coffee and then (laughs) left which I'm kind of that person too like I said coffee station food um but 75 minutes um I feel afterward a sense of accomplishment that's all I need to do and so um I practice this kind of time clumping with lots of things so with book with book writing I said you only have to write one chapter a day that's all you have to do is write one chapter a day. And sometimes I wouldn't make it to that chapter. Um, sometimes I would make it to a paragraph. Sometimes it wasn't very much at all, but I would just set a limit for myself of you only have to do it for this long or you only have to write this much. And if I looked at the whole big picture, looking at over 200 pages, that's overwhelming. How am I going right, to write over 200 pages? Right. But thinking I can write a chapter today and I can write a chapter tomorrow much more manageable. Yeah, breaking it down, that's great advice. Would you recommend that women read self-help books? Like, in terms of our... (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) not. No, nobody should ever read self-help books. That was such an easy answer. I for sure thought you were going to be like, well, let me give you the long answer. And the answer is no. So just just listen to your podcast. You will read the books. Tell us the tips. Yes, I I would love that. The the cook notes. Yeah, I actually was going to say that because I think the, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. If you love self-help books right. and that's your jam, go ahead, read self-help books, enjoy them. But please just keep in mind something that Jolenta, my co-host, says all the time. Nobody is more of an expert in you than you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these authors are acting as though they are more of an expert in you than you are. Mm-hmm. They've never even met you. What do they know? They don't know anything about you. So don't necessarily put all your trust in them. Don't treat what they're saying as the Bible. I think a lot of people do that too. Right. Um, They'll decide somebody is their guru because something really spoke to them. And so, you know, if you really want to read, go ahead, read, but maybe do it with a grain of salt. Or, as you said, listen to our show because, you know, early on, most people when they listen to the show will decide, I'm a Jolenta or I'm a Kristen. Jolenta identifies as 
someone who's kind of a mess, somebody who's always seeking answers, and she really wants to believe the promises of self-help books. And she really wants to believe the promises of self-help books. But I came from a background as a critic. I was a film critic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been an art <laughs> critic. I've been a theater critic. And so I was going in with a much more critical eye on things. And so a lot of people will listen and immediately identify more with me or with Jolenta. Jolenta also is somebody who suffers from more anxiety and self-flagellation. And I'm somebody who, for the most part, is like very even-tempered and happy. Mm-hmm. I'm a mostly happy person. <laughs> and I don't say mean things to myself every day, and she does. And so, you know, whoever you identify with more, that will, I think, help you filter through like, oh, Jolenta loved that book, and I'm like, Jolenta, right. I think I would get something out of it. Or I'm more like Kristen and you know what, like Kristen, I think that astrology book would make me want to punch somebody in the face. So I'm not going to, not going to read that astrology book. <laughs> to yeah. avoid violence. Yes. <laughs> what, do you think that these books oftentimes are, this is getting really into it, but like are oftentimes written to make women feel worse? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially diet books. I think right. diet books, there is no way you can win a diet book. You just can't win. You can't win because you are practicing some form of restricted or unnatural eating. And we lived by a diet book in our first season. Um, What was the diet? It was called French Women Don't Get Fat. And that was supposed to be a book that was about the joy of eating, not about restriction, but it starts off with 48 hours of not being allowed to eat. And I just, I I don't think there's a way to win diet books. Mm -hmm. They are designed to keep you on a cycle so you go back and buy more diet books. Right. And... Honestly, I think a lot of self-help books are not that different from diet books. Here are a bunch of strategies that nobody could keep up for the rest of their lives. Right. Here is something to keep you obsessed over something and not necessarily feel a sense of balance or control, but to have obsessive control, which is not, in my mind, control at all. Right, right. But it, And if you can read it with the lens of, let me find some tips that might be helpful to me for whatever I'm trying to get, great. But that's virtually impossible, probably, once you once you really have are diving into the book. Yeah, I mean, there there are little nuggets that can be gained from anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, even that diet book, Jolenta found some good things out of it. She, she thought at one point, you know, um, I really am happy if I'm just having a really delicious square of chocolate and a glass of Prosecco, and I feel chic. And the mindset of, I feel chic, I feel so French, really helped her to not eat the whole family-sized bag of M&M's sometimes. Um, But, you know, most of these diets are not sustainable. Right. They're just not. Right. It's not a a long-term solution. No, it's not. A lot of entrepreneurs start, you know, their business or their podcast or whatever they're working on with a business partner. And so mm-hmm. you work with your friend, Jolenta. Yes. yes. And were you guys were friends beforehand? Yes. Okay. We were work friends. Okay. Yes. yes. So we met at WNYC actually. We um I was hosting a podcast. I was producing. She was an admin who also did the voiceovers for she, she did this episode is brought to you by the House Foundation. We build houses out of houses. Like she that was her. That that was her kind of a dream job. I would love that. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, and we always just loved chatting with each other about pop culture. We worked on this hard news show, but she and I would love just chatting about crap stuff that was never going to be covered on the news show. And so um, we enjoyed each other's company. We already knew a little bit about each other's work habits. Mm-hmm. And right. I think that's something important if you're ever going to work with a friend is to know what is their work style. And 
Is their work style going to drive you crazy? Is right. the other person too much of a taskmaster? Are they going to be a micromanager? Is the other person going to work at a pace that feels to you as if they're lazy? Um, whatever it is, I think it's important to know in advance your tolerance level for what that is. Um, yeah. I know, for example, I am very, very, very driven by accountability to other people. So I know if someone else is counting on me, I will get shit done. Oh, I'm, I didn't even ask. Can I use barnyard language yes, on this? Yes, you can use barnyard language. Okay, all right. So I, I knew... I should have said that. Barnyard language. It came up even. It came up. So I knew up front, you know, this is how I work. And, um, and early on, I learned that Jolenta doesn't work that way. Accountability doesn't really matter to her. Right. That's not what drives her to complete things. And she has her own schedule of doing things. And it has to do with inspiration. It has to do with needing downtime. It has to do with a lot of different things. And she'll always come through in the end. But she isn't going to be driven by the same thing as me. And I think my point there is there's not one right or wrong way to do it, but what are you comfortable working with? Yeah. Somebody like me might drive somebody like her crazy. Mm -hmm. Somebody like her might drive someone like me crazy, but we're fortunate that it works for us. But I think it's important to know up front. And also, I think friendship is more important than business. Don't ruin a wonderful friendship mm -hmm. by trying to go into business with them if you can already sense that you're not going to work well together. Right. Yeah. It's a very complicated relationship, right? Like extremely yes. complicated. Did you put in any kind of, um, put into place any kind of formal agreement when you were starting? Because you're starting a business. There's, you know, money involved, hopefully, for any business <laughs> partner. Um, you know, maybe in some situations people have made like an investment, you know, but did you, or did you just dive right in and it's just worked? What we, um, we dove right in with the help of Panoply at the time because okay, I was working full-time at Panoply. Panoply was the one that was paying the bills and um, uh, helping us to produce the show and so on. So it was done through a third party. And then we now have Stitcher, which is the, our current third party. And so it's all of us as a team, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. So Jolent and I, technically speaking, are not a business together. We each have our own business entities we've created. Right. Um, but we usually work with another company. Got it. So that makes it a little bit maybe easier. Yes. On the friendship. I think so. <laughs> Someone think... else to blame. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> blame others. It's all about blaming. But it is complicated. I mean, I think it's great advice to put the friendship first. Because I do think a lot of people start business together. And you can, even from the beginning, you know it's going to be tense and... It could ruin, I mean, a lot of times it can ruin a friendship. Yes, it and can. it's not, I mean, you're spending so much time together. And yes. there's so much weight on it that yes. if it's not going to work, it's okay mm -hmm. to, to identify that. Or maybe put some kind of agreement in place so then also if it doesn't work, you kind of have it on paper and you've already decided what the ins and outs of kind of the relationship might be. Yes, yes. Very complicated. Very, very complicated relationship. You have so many things going on. How do you manage your time? Like, how do you look? <laughs> Not well at all. <laughs> Horribly. People usually hate when I ask this question, if we're being honest. You know, and I think a lot of people don't think of it as like, especially when you have a lot of different things. Like for me too, I have a business and I have the podcast and I have other volunteer opportunities. I don't necessarily think of it as like, oh, what's my time management strategy? Just mm -hmm. kind of life happens and you get it all done. But are there things that you use, resources or tips or even, you know, actual tools like a project management system to keep your life kind of in check and make your deadlines that people are holding you accountable for? Well, one thing I do, and I started this years ago, is I keep an ongoing 
Google Doc list of my things to do. And my list always has minimum 20 things on it. And I cross as many off as I can today, move the leftovers to tomorrow. So there's always stuff that needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And I always am aware of it and cross it off the list. But um, I'm, I'm a real like Google person, my Google Calendar, my Google Docs, all of that. And then also one thing I've done for myself since I moved from being a full-time staffer to a freelancer is um, I get lonely mm-hmm. and I'm an extrovert. And anytime I find myself too many days in a row sitting home at, a, at home alone working, I get really like sad. And being sad doesn't help me make my best work. Mm-hmm. So um, I do everything I can to make sure minimum once a week, ideally up to three times a week, I have work that takes me out of my house, whether it's a work date with a friend, going to the studio at Stitcher, um, making sure that I'm doing interviews like these, but I have to make sure that I'm getting out of my house and um, even getting out of my neighborhood because it's also very easy just to, you know, get out of my house and then walk a block to the coffee right, shop. Right, the coffee shop. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's important for me to, like, make sure I'm walking a few miles every day and getting away from my house and seeing people. Right. And that's great to know. I mean, I think a lot of us, especially if you do go to a day job where you're going there every day, even there to think about like, what are the things that make you happier, a better worker? I mean, it's easier when you're working for yourself and you have more control, obviously. But even if there are just things that, you know, like you are an extrovert and you do need, even if you go into the office every day to take a 15 minute break and talk to your work friend, I mean, it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. And I was the kind of person who back in my office days, um, Every morning, I would say hello to every person as I walked in. Good morning, Lindsay. How are you today? Hey, Cameron. How was your weekend? Oh, Christy, it's so good to see you. What a cute new top. Is that is that a new top? And I loved every day starting it off saying hello to every person at the end of the night, saying goodbye to every single mm-hmm. person. I just, I loved doing that. And one of my first questions when I went freelance was, how am I going to say hello every morning and good night every night? Right. Um, who am I going to say that to? And so that's been something I work on all the time is making sure I have people to say good morning and good night to every day. Yeah. Speaking of that French eating book, in the French parenting book that I read, <laughs> they in France, they it's very impolite not to say hello to every person and goodbye. And they mm-hmm. teach children actually very early on that you 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 need to say hello to everyone and goodbye to everyone and that you know very respectful. So that's something that I'm sure people really appreciate. You might not even know how French you are. You're living the French way, eating the French way, speaking the French way. I want to talk about resilience for a moment in terms of um, you know the pivots that you've made and bouncing around and having to bounce back probably from opportunities that maybe haven't worked out. So are there things that you have learned from the path that you've taken? You know, our industry is evolving constantly. We talked a little bit before, like there are just jobs that you might not even know you want that, um, you know, don't even exist yet. So what what is kind of any advice that you have or any thoughts you have against resilience? What's helped you throughout your path kind of bouncing back, bouncing around, bouncing back from not having internships, mm-hmm. any of the things that have kind of, you've encountered along your path? I think that... Part of being resilient is actually not seeing failure as a bad thing. And um, every time I don't get what I want or screw up something or don't do as well as I should have at something, I, I try to think of, oh, what could I learn from that? Rather than think, oh, God, Kristen, you're a horrible failure. I try my best. And I don't always succeed at it, but I try to think, what did I learn from it? Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. And... I also think that I'm normally very opposed to comparing ourselves to others. I think 
you know, compare and despair is just the worst cycle. And um, uh, as Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. I just, I'm not into normally comparing. But this is one instance where I think it is good to compare. Everybody out there at one point or another hasn't gotten what they wanted professionally. Everybody out there at one point or another has screwed up on the job. Everybody out there at one point or another knows that there was something they didn't understand and they should have asked more questions or taken more initiative. We've all done these things, so you're not alone in it. And I don't mean that, again, as a total compare thing so much as a you're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. We've all done this before. This is part of growing. It's part of learning, and it's okay. And that helps me to be a little bit more resilient and not just – be full of sadness right. and hide under the blankets every Crumple, day. It's like, right. it's like, I'm not alone in this. Everybody else has gone through this stuff too. And yeah. it's fine. And it's totally fine. And how boring would it be if everybody walked in like a robot every single day and did every single thing right? That'd be pretty boring. Right. Nobody would ever learn anything. Yeah. And life is long, right? So we yes. have our ups and downs. I mean, that's something yes. I think of all the time with these things. It's like life is very long and you look at the big picture and you can even look at your own past probably to find other things oh, yeah. that you have, you know, opportunities you haven't received and how you've bounced back yourself. Oh yeah. I've screwed up a lot. I mean, I, I think back on some of my earlier jobs where, you know, when I first started working on television, I think I was hired for a job that nobody trained me for and there was no one there to train me. And that that had a couple of issues. One, why didn't they give me any training? Because maybe I could have done the job better if they trained me. And how would it have changed if I would have known who I could have asked the questions of? Mm-hmm. Because um, I didn't even know who to ask questions of at the time. Right. And maybe if I knew who to ask questions of, or maybe on day one, if I would have just made clear during my first week, I have all these questions. I don't know who I'm supposed to ask. I'm wandering around here just talking to other people saying, who do I ask? Who do I ask? And they're like, I don't know. Who do you ask? Right, right. And if I would have asked up front, who do I ask? It may have helped me more. Right. That's a that's a good lesson to learn. <laughs> you can apply in the future. Yes. A lot of listeners, actually, I've got a lot of feedback and um, a lot of conversation in just kind of the world of career advice about women and apologizing. So Ooh. we started to talk a little bit about this, this on this particular podcast where we talk a lot about different advice and I like to... Talk to women within the organization of New York Women in Communications and just in general about like what are some of your you know recent concerns. A lot of it is around talking about money. I mean, there's all kinds of things. But really what's been bubbling up a lot lately is apologizing. Like mm-hmm. women apologizing. Starting an email with, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm um, sorry to bother you, but exactly. oh, I'm sorry to be getting back to you on this. It's like, you're not getting back to me late on anything. Sorry for the delay. That actually... And, and I would love to hear, yeah, what are your thoughts around that and anything if you feel like personally you apologize too much or not or if you see other women doing it and kind of what you've learned from this because mm-hmm. we're really trying to get to the bottom of it on this podcast. All right. My answer is twofold. Number one, sometimes I wish men would apologize more. <laughs> apologizing is not that bad of a thing. That's, I think, why this conversation started. <laughs> and frankly, more men, if men are listening, men, I, I'm sure if you are sensitive and smart you're apologizing when appropriate hopefully you are but a lot of men aren't look at politics look at uh captains of industry look at all the people who screw up left and right who sexually harass people who embezzle money why aren't they apologizing frankly more people should apologize however i know in the workplace for women it can you know look weak if we apologize too much so Um, In the case of work, one lesson I got many, many years ago was say thank you instead. Back to that old gratitude thing. Thank you for your patience. Mm -hmm. Hi, thank you for meeting up with me today. 
there are a lot of things you don't have to apologize for. Being 90 seconds late for a meeting, you don't have to apologize for. Right. Being seven minutes late, you should. Right. But 90 seconds, don't apologize for that. Hey, thanks for your patience. It's so nice to meet you. Thank people instead of apologize. I just got that advice actually from a colleague and I loved it. Never even thought about it. They said that exactly like, thank you for waiting if I'm late. Like, thank you for waiting for me rather than I'm so sorry that I was late. And I think there's two things, right? So the first thing that you mentioned, which is so true, is the genuine apology. Knowing when you have to apologize and actually apologizing. I mean, that's what we're seeing in our world right now where there are these big apologies that come out and they don't actually ever say I'm sorry yes. for what I did, right? Yes. So that's the one side. It's unfortunate if your feelings were hurt by yep. misinterpreting what I said. It's like, oh, really? What you said was super racist. I, I'm going to actually take that personally. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, that's, right, I'm sorry you feel that way. It's yes. not an apology. Yes, not an apology. Thing. Not an apology. But yes, I think women, we just apologize for everything. And I've actually taken a very, it's, it's an effort to not apologize in email Especially in email, like unless you say to me, here's the deadline for when I need you to get back to me, there's no deadline on email. If I want to get back to you in a year, okay, that's my <laughs> that's my pace. And our listeners know I do not like email, so that's a whole other episode. Um, but yeah, but I think that it's interesting to hear it, especially have a woman, you know, women having the conversation around it of like, you don't have to apologize. That's okay. You don't have to be sorry for everything. You don't have to be sorry for everything. And I think that you know, again, some things are okay to be sorry for. And I also think not all apologizing is bad. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm sorry is a way of showing empathy. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that's okay. Show some empathy. It's okay to apologize sometimes. But you don't need to apologize for everything. Right. And um, most of the time when you're apologizing for really, really tiny, petty things, it's not making the other person feel better. So why do it? Right. Exactly. And I think it's a balance, too. As I've been having this conversation like with myself, it's between apologizing for petty things that you don't need to do and also I think now some even especially women I've worked with they they're so they know they don't want to apologize so then when they actually need to apologize they don't so it's kind of just being self-aware right of mm-hmm. what what does it mean why why are you even saying I'm sorry you know are you really sorry you're probably not sorry for coming to a meeting <laughs> 90 seconds late and you don't have to be yes um but are you sorry that you made a a hugely screw up, screwed up at work that affected other people. And, you know, I think sometimes we also, if we're like embarrassed, we don't want to apologize. But understanding when it's appropriate and not, I think is all kind of what we're yeah. maybe potentially working on. Yeah. Have a have a sense of perspective on it. Right. Totally. No, I love it. And I love just talking about that topic specifically because I just think we haven't, especially women, we haven't been talking about it. And we're all just constantly apologizing to mm-hmm. each other, right? Like what was that, that viral tweet that was like, you're just basically life is replying sorry for my delayed response to your email until you die like that really opened my eyes I was like oh god I'm never writing that again <laughs> we're gonna transition into some of our little games that we play on this okay. interview I love games so, oh, good. I'm super into games oh great well then you're hopefully we'll have fun so the first we we often like to ask our guests what we call classic, classically annoying interview questions okay. so these are the questions you're getting an interview or potentially asking at an interview that are very cliche, right? Mm-hmm. And you prepare for them, but they probably don't have anything to do with the job that you're actually mm-hmm. interviewing for. So I always like to give our guests the option. You can either answer these how you honestly would answer, or you can answer these how you think people, your interviewer would want to mm-hmm. have you answer, right? Because they're always looking for something specific, although I feel like we don't necessarily know what it is. So the first one is, where do you see yourself five years from now? I don't know. 
And I think that it's okay to not know where you're going to be in five years. I mean, as you were saying, Julie, the industry that we're in, the job may not even be invented yet. Yeah. And being open-minded and flexible about what it could be and being optimistic and hopeful about it, I think that that's a better place for me to be psychologically than to be fixated on just one outcome. Yeah. And so I'm okay not knowing. It's totally fine that I don't know. All I know is I'm trying my best right now. I'm challenging myself. I'm learning new things. And I'm trying to keep an open mind. And as a follow-up question, not as your fake interviewer, but just on that kind of, do you personally create any kind of medium-term plan for your life? Do you look at I have a, a plan week, f- a month, a year, whatever? I, I have a plan for the next year or so. Okay. So um, before I got laid off from Panoply, I was already talking with Jolenta and with my husband about the plan of possibly quitting that job anyway and going full-time freelance. And... I got let go three months before what my date was going right. to be, um, which is fine because I already had a plan in place right. for that. But part of the plan was my husband and I came up with a number and we said, if you make this much money in your first year and you feel good about being a freelancer, if you're not feeling too lonely, if you're feeling productive enough, mm-hmm. if you're having fun with it, then why not give it another year mm-hmm. chance? And so fortunately I got a book advance right away and so I already met my goal right, within wow. the first week of coming up with that plan so it was fine but um, it really for us comes down to agreeing to a certain number that we know is safe for us and to a certain level of happiness and then renewing on that so um, if I still feel good about it next year at this time we're going to renew it and do it for another year and we'll just I keep on that. trying it yeah I love that it's like also, just having a foot in reality, right? I think that's often yes. hard to be like, I actually need to make money. I, you know, we always all want to live our dreams, but yes. how can I support? I like that duality of it. You can yes. just live your dream on one end, and you kind of have a path in terms of how much money yeah. you actually need on the other. Yeah, and also realizing if the dream isn't making you happy. I mean, that's right. one thing he said over and over again. If you don't like this lifestyle after right. a year. it's great. Because a lot of, I don't know if you remember this show called Fantasy Island that used to be on mm-hmm. back uh, I think it was after a love boat on Saturday yeah. nights, all through the 80s. But that show, the lesson of every show is you're going to get exactly what you always wanted and you're going to regret it. And so, um, you know, if, if, if it turns into a fantasy island moral of the story sort of situation, it's like you don't have to renew the dream. Right. Next year you can come up with a different dream. Yeah. And that's kind of what my husband and I agreed on. I love that. I mean, that's a whole other episode of this show. It's like what happens when you do get the dream job or the dream whatever and then you hate it? Oh, yeah, that's happened to me before. Yeah. And then it's okay to change. Right. You have to just keep keep an open mind. Whew. Um, okay, your next question from your interviewer is, what has been the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome professionally? <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> I think there are so many obstacles here. But I, I, um, I, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, where I think the biggest obstacle was just figuring out the importance of talking to people and networking with them. I mean, I was such a straight-A student my whole life. All that mattered is, you know, even if I just crammed at the last minute, I could study for a test during lunch and then ace the SAT. I mean, I had, I was always just a fantastic test taker. I could write a very good paper in just an hour. I, I had no problem getting great grades. And I didn't understand in college and the workplace, it took me a while to realize it takes more than just getting good grades. You're supposed to talk to people. You're supposed to meet mm-hmm. with your professors. You're supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to build relationships with people. You're supposed to do all of these things, partly so that it doesn't matter if you're a poor kid who can't work an internship. You do this stuff to help you grow as a person, grow as a student, grow as an employee, and so on. And 
I think it took me a while to really understand that lesson. So mm-hmm. um, once I got over that, I think things got a lot better for me and I advanced a lot further in everything I did. Yeah, I'd say the moral of this podcast episode is network. Network, yes. network. Yes, <laughs> network, yes. Network. A lot of companies now are asking candidates these like crazy interview questions that are, tr- who knows, oftentimes what they're actually trying to get out of it. But we've also been collecting some of those to ask our guests these wacky questions that are being asked in real interviews. So this one comes from QuickBooks. And they ask people who are interviewing at their job, you know, for a job at QuickBooks, what's your spirit animal? Um, I, first of all, was told recently that we shouldn't say spirit animal QuickBooks um, by one of my native listeners. That actually, as we're saying, that makes so much sense. Yes. So QuickBooks, maybe you want to rethink that question. (laughs) But um, but I... the animal that represents you? What is this I, actually even asking? Yeah, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? Right. What animal do you identify most with? I think I'm a beaver. <laughs> I am such a... Beavers love to work. Work, work, work. They love working. They have a community. Yeah. You can't stop them from working. Beavers in captivity will start building dams out of anything around them. So let's say you have them in a veterinary clinic and there's just stuffed animals around. They'll start collecting them and trying to build... Oh, my gosh. Um, ...enclosures and so on. They love... They just love working. They love teamwork. They love living with other beavers. And um, I fancy myself an environmentalist, and they're environmentalists. The way they work with pools of water and so on, they actually filter the water and they clean things. Um, And for the most part, beavers, I just... I think they're kind of cute. Like, they seem generally happy. They seem, I mean, I they, seem they seem genuinely happy, and, and they're kind of cute. Like, I don't think I'm imposing or dangerous. I think I'm just kind of, like, small and cute like a beaver. So, yeah. <laughs> and I love to work. You can't stop me from working. I love that. a great answer. Oh, my gosh. You're ready. You're going to get that job at QuickBooks, whether they, you know, whether they're PC or not. Um, we've reached our lightning round, so I'm going to ask you a few quick questions about some of your own experiences. Okay. Um, we're going to go through them very fast. What's the best job you've ever had? I actually love the job I have now. Hosting by the book and writing, I love it. I, I And one of the things I love most about it is I love the creative storytelling process And I love having a relationship with our listeners. We have a Facebook community with over 12,000 people in it. And we hear from them by the hundreds every single week. And feeling as though I'm not creating in a vacuum anymore. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, back when I first started podcasting, back when I was first writing, I kind of felt that I was in a vacuum. So it really helps the extrovert in me to feel like I'm not just sitting alone in a room making. I'm actually making as part of a much bigger universe of people. And that we're all together. I love that. What's the worst job you've ever had, including those jobs you had back in? Oh, my gosh. You know, one job I had that I just did not enjoy at all was um, there was a nonprofit, an environmental nonprofit I worked for briefly when I was in college, and I was a telemarketer. And toughy. trying to just cold call people and get them to donate money is not fun. I, I mean, some people might love it. Right. If you love it. I commend you because it's a special gift that you have to have. I didn't enjoy calling up people and asking for money. I knew that for a lot of people, money is something that we don't have a lot of. Mm-hmm. And then to just call up people and ask for it, oh, I didn't enjoy that at all. Calling them at dinner time, probably yep. most likely. Yep. <laughs> when they would be home at dinner time, yes. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. What's the best career advice you've ever received? Mm, the best career advice. Oh my gosh, I'm so lucky. I've gotten so much great career advice over the years from so many different people. You know, the talking to people, the asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
one piece of advice was just don't even think about what you're qualified for. Look at every job listing out there and circle everything that just looks interesting to you. I love that. And then think about how would you get there. But mm-hmm. just dream first and then think about how you get there. Dream first. But the simplest thing that you can do right now is that Joel Meyer advice. Just learn to make the coffee where you are. Make it every day and talk to people at the coffee station. Mm-hmm. That's just like very simple. You can do it at this moment. Right. Even if you have one of those automated coffee machines, yes. just stand by it. Just stand by it. Yes. And Spend some time and talk to people. I mean, I think that is the hard part, right? That's yeah. the barrier. Just talk, like saying hi to the person next to you. Talk to everybody around you. A lot of people wish people would say hi to them. Yeah. A lot of people are wondering, why doesn't anyone talk to me at this office? Well, you can be the one who starts it. Yeah. I'll talk to anyone. So yeah. <laughs> hire me to work at yes. your office. And yes. I love to chat. Yes. And ask questions. Ask questions. And is there a truly terrible piece of career advice that you've ever received or something maybe that you've read in a book that you're like, oh God, don't do not do this. Don't follow it. Oh, I mean, I think there are a lot of books that are saying act like a man at work. And what does that even mean? Aren't gender roles completely uh, socially constructed? Right. So the idea that there is a way that men naturally act versus how women naturally act. No, men have been trained from a very early age to carry themselves with a lot more confidence with the much smaller resume (laughs) and men have been taught a lot of things like that but I don't think it's always good to try and emulate certain man traits like I said earlier one thing that men are taught from an early age is not to apologize right I was thinking that exactly yeah so so I think any book that's telling you to act like a man um don't do that act like yourself act like the very best version of yourself yeah and what are the things I mean I think a lot of times there's a lot of books that act like a man and a lot of times some of those things are just ways that certain people that are not necessarily specific to men. They're yes, just exactly. Per, you know. It's just like, this is just how somebody acts right. who is responsible. Right, this like, is just somebody who has good presentation skills. Exactly. Or, yeah. right, even the conversation around apologizing. Like, it's not really men don't, you know, don't have to apologize and women do. It's mm-hmm. just that, then that's how we're having that conversation. But it's just like, I want to be someone who doesn't feel like you have to apologize for everything. That's just me. Yes. That's not a man. No, I totally agree. I love that. Is there a particular, you know, office moment or moment in your career that's just so memorable that sticks out to you? Oh, gosh. I have so many. (laughs) I mean, part of this is because I love to work, and I've always loved working, and I love people, and so I have so many really good memories, but can I give two? Of course. Okay, so one of them is um, when I was promoted to a managerial position when I was at Panoply, and I kind of didn't want to be a manager. For a long time, I said, I'm a maker, not a manager. I'm a maker, not a manager. I don't want to manage. I don't want to manage. And somehow I kind of got scooted into it and got scooted into it until finally I was like, okay, okay, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll try being a manager and as long as I can still be a maker. And I was really worried. Of, like, am I doing a good job? How can I do my best at this? I would uh, do reading on how to be a good manager. I would uh, have one-on-ones every week with my people where the first question was, what can I do for you? I said immediately to each of them, I am your advocate, not your manager, so please, let's try to have that kind of relationship. I'm here to help you. And I still just had no confidence that I was doing a good job. And then a few weeks into it, one of my direct reports said, Kristen, can I just grab you for a minute? I really need to talk with you about something. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. And I was like, oh, I'm so thrilled. They feel like they can approach me and ask me questions. And um, we went back into a room and all my direct reports were there to throw me a surprise party. (laughs) <laughs> and they got me presents. They got me a little statue that looked like an Academy Award that said a winner on it. It had cookies. And they said, we know that you don't always feel that you're the best manager, but you absolutely are. 
legitimately and they, and, they said, and they said yeah. that I was the best manager they ever had. And I did screw up, and I wasn't perfect at that job, and I wasn't empowered to do everything that I wanted to do there, not by a long shot. But the fact that they appreciated me, it just, it was amazing. I've never even heard of that. Like, for even <laughs> to someone to say, but I think the thing that you did that I also have never heard is say, I'm a manager. I have to care about the people who work for me. Mm-hmm. I'm an advocate for them. I mean, you know, this is their livelihood, and I'm responsible for it, essentially. Not that you said that in that exact words. Yeah. And that you cared. Oh, my God. Best manager ever. Oh. I'm, I love that story. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's thank a memorable you. office moment. Maybe thank the most you. beautiful one. Oh, thank you. And I here's just it. a fluffier one. So back when I was <laughs> hosting a show called When Meghan Met Harry, which yeah. was about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's uh, wedding and the lead up to it, it ran for only about six months. It ran from their engagement until their wedding. Um, the grand finale of the show was my co-host James Barr and I going to their wedding. And my God, that was one of the happiest, most magical moments of work I've ever had or just in life. Not just work, but oh in life. Oh, my god! It really was special to be there at, at Windsor Castle <laughs> with, oh with tens of thousands of other people popping champagne and being jolly and everyone talking to each other and everyone dressed in fabulous clothes and fascinators and sitting on picnic blankets. And, and people from all over the world were there waving flags and just celebrating it was it was a great that. moment. Yeah, it was nations coming together. It was races coming together. It was, um, it was just a beautiful, fun day where it felt that everybody was there and everybody was happy. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love it. And just as we close this out, related to that, but maybe unrelated to everything else we've talked about, how did you get interested in the royal family? Have you always been passionate about the royals? Oh, from a very young age. My mom was an Anglophile. Um, she loved watching the EastEnders, and she'd always say, you know, this is Princess Di's favorite show. Um, <laughs> that's a British soap opera. And then um, we, when I was growing up, my Nana taught me how to read, partly just she loved celebrity gossip. And so we would sit down and read the rags together. Here's the National Enquirer, and we'd read about all the royals. And I still remember reading about... Uh, Princess Grace and that car accident. I remember reading about, you know, all of these different things mm-hmm. about um, uh, Princess Di having a baby. And then, but when I was very, very young, they got married and it was my first memory ever of a wedding. Even though it wasn't like a wedding I was seeing right. in real life, it was just, it was on all the news channels and it was, it was everywhere. There were a bunch of made for TV movies about it and it really stuck out in my mind of like, oh, that's what a wedding is. Right. And so, um, from a young age, they've always kind of been a part of my consciousness. And I also covered the wedding of Wills and Kate. And I saw Princess die when she was alive. I lived in England for a little while. So oh. um, they've kind of been in and out of my life pretty much my whole life. I love it. What a great story, though, of turning your passion and interest into profession. Like yes. just literally reading a gossip magazine, turning it into <laughs> a job. We can do everything, anything here in media. Yes. Well, thank you so, so much. I have had so so much fun chatting oh, with you. This has been a Thank blast. You. This Thank has been you. so much fun. I really appreciate it. You you are just a blast. Oh, I'm sure you. that everybody who comes on your show must just love opening up to you and telling you all about their work screw-ups and their work triumphs. I'm sure they I love it. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I ask them probably more than they uh, want to share, but I, <laughs> I get it out of them. No, Thank you so much. And Remind us again about the book and when it's coming out and anywhere else we can find you, social media. Yes, yes. So the book is called So You Want to Start a Podcast, and it comes out August 6th, I believe, August 7th, and it comes out the first week of August, 
2019. And I also host By the Book with Jolenta Greenberg. That's the reality show podcast with the self-help books. Um, up until recently, I hosted When Megan Met Harry, a royal wedding cast. And Jolenta and I currently have another podcast in the works. So keep your ears open for that other podcast. So exciting. And are you Twitter, Instagram, where do you yes. like people to find you? Website, and you have a website. Yes, I have a website. It's called kristenmeinzer.com, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-E-I-N-Z-E-R.com. I'm also at Kristen Meinzer on Twitter. And on Instagram, you can find me at K-1-0-M-E-I-N-Z-E-R. That's K-10-Meinzer. K10 Mindzer. Yes. That's, that's, that's a right. tougher one to say on the podcast. Yes, but. that's right. Great. Well, I we will be following along with you. Congratulations on your book. It's thank amazing. You. I definitely we've started a podcast, but I'm sure I will learn many tips from it. So thank you very much. Um, if you want to learn more about this podcast, you can follow New York Women in Communications on Twitter at NYWICI, and you can find all of our episodes at nywici.org, nywiki.org slash podcast. Thanks to our very special guest, Kristen Meinzer, and thank you for listening.